the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we'll be getting under the skin of an Irish Times investigation which revealed that hundreds of residents in boomtime apartment blocks are facing huge bills, the risk of eviction and the prospect of costly legal actions to fix structural defects in their homes. Neve Towie and Jack Horgan-Jones joined me for that segment. In the second half of the show, Mark Paul of the Irish Times will tell me about Diageo's plans to launch a new cider into the Irish market. What will this mean for Clamel-based C&C and its Bulmers brand, which dominates the domestic cider market here? But we'll start this week with a roundup of some of the main business stories, and I'm joined in studio by Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times. Peter, we're going to talk about money, 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 money. And Ireland has a new billionaire, or so it seems. Well, we do, we do, technically. Uh, the new billionaire is financier John Armitage. She is the co-founder of uh, Egerton Capital. It's a, a hedge fund in London. Most people have never heard of him. Who Most is he? Most people will have never heard of him. You're right. Uh, and he has a reported wealth of 1.3 billion. He is a um, not a very public man. As I say, he co-founded this hedge fund mm. in the uh, 1990s with an Irish-American financier. It, the co-founder has since left, but he has grown this to be a very successful hedge fund. It's amongst Europe's top 20, uh, according to recent rankings. So quite a successful man in his own right. Uh, worked in finance prior to setting up the hedge fund. He worked with a company that was ultimately uh, acquired by Deutsche Bank in 1991. So yeah. so that, that's his background. I suppose right. he's very much an English man. He's, he's as Irish as the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, well, he got nationality last February. Uh, he he changed his nationality, so so he's, he's he's Irish technically, as we said at the beginning, but very much an Englishman. Uh, mm. Now, the, look, I suppose his entry into the list is kind of unusual. Over the past few years, the list has been fairly stagnant. We've seen the same names. Uh, year on year. Some this year have fallen out like Michael O'Leary uh, and Glenn Dimplex founder Martin Nocton. So they were no longer present Do we know this why? year. Forbes values uh, based, I, I, I'm not sure why Martin Nocton wasn't in, but some of Forbes values would be based on Michael O'Leary's shareholding, for example, in Ryanair. And obviously that would have increased or decreased rather with, with the fall in the share price. So presumably that's why he's out this year. Uh, they don't tend to talk about the people that are out, but that's that's what we gather. Uh, now, there were new entrants, of course, this year, including Kingspan's founder and chairman, yeah. uh, Eugene Murta, and as I said, uh, as we spoke about uh, financier John Armitage. And what about the Collison brothers? Are they in there? They are in there, and, and their wealth has risen. They're said to be worth $2.3 billion each, which is quite significant, uh, while... Uh, John Graken, the the private equity founder of Lone Star, he saw his worth rise to six point nine billion. There were some people who lost out this year. Uh, Dennis O'Brien was one of those. He, his worth is now said to be four billion. That's down from four point six billion uh, the previous year. Right. Okay. Well, still four billion. Uh, not not bad. Uh, it's no small amount of change. Uh, but these surveys, they really are just a load of old fluff, Peter, aren't they? They are absolutely. I mean, they don't tell us a whole lot. We don't really know what what uh, some of these people's private accumulated wealth is. Uh, because and we certainly don't know what their debts are. We don't know what their debts are, but but very often it's private uh, and Forbes can only find out what's in the public domain to the same extent that we can. 
Right. Okay. Now you're a man who likes his takeaway food and Deliveroo are on the expansion trail in Ireland and you've been reporting about it. Yeah, I have. They they want to increase the number of restaurants they have on their platform from 600 to almost 1,000. That doesn't really put them anywhere near Just Eat who would at the moment be a competitor in the space and we'll we'll come on to that again in a a few moments. But... um, Deliveroo is also planning on increasing its rider headcount to more than 1,000. They've launched in Blanchardstown this week. They're launching soon in Swords. What do you mean launch, launch in Blanchardstown? What does that actually mean? So it wouldn't have been available there beforehand because they wouldn't have had the restaurants or the riders in place to cope with demand from a consumer in Blanchardstown. So if I logged on while I was in that location, it wouldn't have shown up on my app or I wouldn't have been able to order while in that location. So their Irish plans are part of a very aggressive expansion plan across Europe. They want to reach about 100 million people by the end of the year in the market. So it, it is very fast paced uh, and in a very challenging market where de, where Uber Eats has reduced its commission to about 30%. Deliveroo charges 35% in some cases. Um, Just Eat is making inroads into this delivery market. Uh, Just so one third of the ticket price, if somebody orders, let's say, a, a pizza, one third of the price of that pizza goes, roughly speaking, goes to Deliveroo. Yes, yeah, it does. And the client, the the, the orderer, also pays two euro ninety nine in a delivery fee. Yeah, They're and we've seen the, um, you know, we've seen the Deliveroo riders out on our streets uh, protesting last week. A large group of Brazilians seem to be working for the company, and they were highlighting the fact that they have been subjected to uh, various forms of uh, abuse by people Mm. on the street and and so forth. So what are Deliveroo saying about that? Well, interestingly, they're saying that they hadn't a system in place whereby riders could tell them that this was happening. They do have that now, and that will help, they say. They say that in some cases, riders are refusing to, to deliver to certain places or certain estates, but that by them simply refusing, that wasn't addressing the root of the problem. With this new system in place, they say that they can pass on that information to the Gardaí and that might have make the situation better in the longer run. Okay. Um, so let's talk about Just Eat then. They posted some results today. They did. And, and so, as we were mentioning, Just Eat... Previously, before the arrival of Deliveroo and and Uber Eats, Just Eat was simply the online platform. It just facilitated all these restaurants uh, so that a consumer could make an order. The restaurants would then deliver. But Just Eat are now going into the Deliveroo and Uber Eats space. And they say that in in that section of the market, they expect to be profitable by the end of this year, which is very different to Deliveroo. Deliveroo has no plans to be profitable in the near term and Uber certainly isn't uh, as it gears up to IPO later this year. On the whole for Just Eat their core earnings rose to almost £174 million and they had revenue of, of £779.5 million. They are definitely still the behemoth in this space. Yeah, it's a lot of money, all right. Now, uh, Paddy Power Betfair, who's uh, known to us all, known and much loved by Irish uh, punters as just uh, Paddy Power for many, many years, took over Betfair a few years ago and extended its name, but now it's going for something completely different. It's going to be called the rather ridiculous Flutter Entertainment PLC. Yeah, it, it is interesting, uh, I suppose. They're saying that this reflects the increased diversity of their brands and operations. With their big move into the US now, as the US market, the US online betting market opens up for Paddy Power um, one 
understands why a name change might have been mooted. Uh, whether this is the, the best name to change to is, is not for me to decide, I suppose. The thing is that this is only going to be the corporate entity name. The consumer-facing brands won't change. Uh, no consumer will be betting from Flutter Entertainment. But it is an, an interesting name. And um, One of our, our colleagues mentioned that with regulatory headwinds in this space, uh, Flutter is, is, is a questionable name to use when when people are suggesting that betting... I suppose now Paddy Power in fairness to them in the UK have been have been uh, good on, on trying to cut down on the number of fixed odds betting terminals that they have uh, compared to some of their their uh, rivals but at the same time when betting is coming under increasing scrutiny Flutter is an unusual choice of name mm, Alright well we'll see how that uh, plays out from I suppose uh, good that at least the Paddy Power brand has been retained uh, over the shops uh, Peter thank you as always Thanks Carol. Now, earlier this week, an investigation by the Irish Times revealed that hundreds of residents in boomtime apartment blocks around the country are facing huge bills, the risk of eviction and the prospect of costly legal actions to fix structural defects in their homes. This investigation was carried out by Neve Towie and Jack Horgan-Jones of the Irish Times and it shows that residents are having to deal with fire safety, construction and other structural problems at Celtic Tiger era apartment developments in Dublin and delighted to say that Neve and Jack join me in the studio. Now, uh, Neve, we might just start with you. Tell us how this came about and what you found? Um, so we first published this kind of a story um, last December. It was um, on an apartment in Kilmainham in Dublin 8 called St. James's Wood um, where surveyors, multiple surveyors had found um, very serious fire safety issues um, things like um, fire stopping that was missing in the compartment walls um, and owners there were faced with bills of up to 20 grand each. Now, those bills have since been revised since we published our article. But um, I suppose it's an issue that's been knocking around a while now. And um, it's really coming. It's really starting to all pile up on us now. And, and I guess the highest profile development was Priory Hall, which everybody knows about because it was across the headlines. Um, and those people ultimately had to move out. And the government had to come up with a scheme to try and uh, compensate them or, or find uh, other accommodation for, uh, for them, find a way of getting them out of the financial and legal mess that they were in at the time. So Priory Hall was very bad. Um, and I suppose that's why it hit the headline so bad. Yeah, I mean, it was horrendous what was found there. Not everywhere is that bad, but at the same time, they're still not compliant with fire safety regulations. And for that reason, it's a very serious um situation that these people are in and it happens to be almost across the board in places it's not just apartments either um you know we're being told that this could be in hotels in hospitals and office blocks everything that was built during the boom at a time when the construction industry was just under such intense pressure um that there possibly wasn't the skills involved um the tradesmen didn't weren't up to scratch and also that the Building regulations didn't um, require any oversight um, and those changed now in 2014 so that there has to be somebody to sign off on work that's done. But prior to that, nobody had to sign off. Fire certs were granted off plans that were submitted before the building was ever built. Um, and and so they were never inspected afterwards? Never. Never had to be. So they weren't. So it was really they were relying on people doing what they said they were going to do, which often people don't. Jack, let's put some numbers on this. How many 
blocks did your investigation uncover as having issues? How many people are, infect, are affected? How many of them are owners and how many are tenants? So um, the specific article that we published on Monday addressed four separate developments. Um, but just in a kind of whip around of recent history on this, you know, there's been, uh, we, we detailed another 12 developments. Um, and I think that what's clear from even a quick search online is that this isn't an issue which is confined to just a small subset of developments. This is an issue which is now verging on the systemic that Celtic Tiger era apartments were um, built under, as Neve said, a regulatory regime and um, a kind of culture at the time, which has left people facing extremely large bills and extremely serious consequences. So while it is, you know, kind of mind blowing in some ways to read the detail of the defects that people are left facing, you know, roofs effectively being held on with cable ties, fire stopping not completed between apartments, um, in water ingress around uh, the, the windows of extremely expensive apartment blocks in the middle of town. Uh, that's kind of almost uh, not the main issue now. I think the main issue now is admitting that we have a problem with this section of the housing stock and then going forward trying to figure out ways in which we address this because the alternative, I know the government is very concerned about you know effectively signing a blank cheque to, to fund defect remedies, but the alternative is that we just kind of effectively accept that a segment of the housing stock is constructively unsafe. Yeah. So uh, what kind of bills are people facing? Well, I mean, so for example, um, one of the cases that we detailed on Monday in Hyde Park, it's uh, it's 11,000 per apartment. Um, I was writing then on Tuesday um, about uh, Beacon South Quarter, which is out in, uh, out in Sandyford there. Um, there it's 13,000, you know, an, an overall bill of, of 10 million. So this is not in the, like in, in, in the, in the aggregate, it's big. Um, but also on the specific level, it's big as well. I mean, a lot of these people um, would be just either buying these to live in or buying them as investment properties, they're ordinary punters, they're men in the street, they don't necessarily have 5, 10, 15,000 euros to throw at repairs, you know. So then if that financial burden lands on them, how do they finance that? What's the impact on them? Are they going to get hit twice? Are they going to get hit for, you know, the, the, the repairs which they have to fund? But also, doubly, is the value of their asset then going to decline? Because, you know, we write about it, it gets a name like this, and obviously people aren't going to pay as much, if at all, for something that has the fire defect or the fire safety defect or the construction defect tag attached to it, you know. So people are very exposed here, and it's a very serious issue. Do we have an aggregate number for how much it would cost to remedy these problems? No, we don't, and I think that's partially the reason why the government is so uh, uncertain about moving ahead with the redress scheme, because effectively it could turn into one of those how long is a piece of string type of things. You know, I mean, there, there's already been tens of millions set aside for MICA and for pyrite uh, defect remedies. They don't want to get into a situation whereby, you know, they are backstopping effectively uh, a large segment of the housing stock. And, mm. and you know, these things as well, one of the reasons that it can be difficult to put a number on it is, you know, you go in and you say, right, here's what's observable and here's a budget to fix that. And then you open up the walls and it gets worse. But you've started. So do you stop? So what, what is like a two million mm. project could become a three to 10 to 15 million project. So it's very difficult. I think we need to actually move away from the idea of, you know, this being just like a transfer perhaps from the state or ideally from the developers responsible and look at more innovative ways of financing these things. And and, and it looked like there was a germ of an idea in that you could maybe get a loan from Home Building Finance Ireland. You know, it would be treated quasi-commercially. It would be advanced to the owner's management company and then serviced on a commercial basis. And you'd be able to actually get ahead of these things and actually start fixing them. But now that seems, that, that, that ember of hope seems to be, be extinguished because HBFI 
effectively aren't interested in fixing old houses. Sure. Um, uh, Neve, who are the developers and what are they saying about this? Uh, they're not saying much. Um, a lot of the developers um, are gone into liquidation and aren't around now. Some of them may be there in other iterations um, and many just want to stay out of this um, because um, there's a statute of limitations which means that a lot of them aren't liable for, um, it hasn't been tested in court yet, but a lot of them aren't liable for paying for the remediation costs um, because there's a six-year uh, time limit on when the these problems become manifest and arguably these problems became manifest the day they were built because the fire stopping was never put in place, because the roof was never finished, you know, was never carried out mm. to the parting walls or whatever. So... Um, and it's not just one bad developer. It's yeah. not you can't say that this is this is across the board. And I think that's why it's a little bit more complex than just saying, um, "Oh, these were really you know developers who didn't care, not reputable builders." Because we've seen from the builders who've been named, a lot of them would have had a very good name, um, especially Cosgrave Group, who built St James's Wood, would be known for having built a lot of high profile. Um, buildings across the country over the last 30 years. Um, so I think it's a little bit more complex than placing the blame at so, any point. So what are they saying? Have we put it to them? We've put it to them, yeah. Um, none of them have come back to us, I don't think. No, no. I mean, largely the, the response will be to, to no comment. I, I think I think there, there can be a bit of a, a false economy in just narrowly pursuing the builders of these projects. I mean, if liability can be established... Absolutely. And this is the point that the government would make, you know, the liability would fall with the builder if liability can establish. But there are some specific situational factors that can make that very complicated and make it, you know, a bit of a fool's errand. Um, the recession being one, a lot of guys just were chewed up and no longer exist. The factors that Eve mentioned, the statute of limitations, uh, the home bond expiry. Um, the fact that, you know, often liability in the construction of a project, as you'll know, Kieran, is distributed amongst several entities. You know, there, there's architects, there's builders, there's subcontractors, and then they may even run it through, you know, self-employed people or SPVs. And, and you're trying to drill down into all that at a distance of 10, 15 years after a recession. That's incredibly complicated. And while we're trying to do that, and sorry, and also then, I mean, often the people who are trying to achieve that are the people who live in, in the houses themselves. There's an asymmetry there between, you know, the people who are trying to understand a complex legal case, potentially, that will go all the way to the high court and potentially a, a well-resourced, well-funded builder. You know, so there's lots of, there's lots of complexity and difficulty there and while that is going on none of these apartments are getting fixed and that's the problem well okay so there, on, on the one hand there there are those who were involved in the construction of these but there was also regulation around it and clearly the regulation there were huge uh, problems with regulation at that time and that these buildings were allowed to be constructed they weren't properly inspected and they were allowed to be inhabited uh, so I mean maybe people can go after the state or local I authorities it, it's it's almost reminiscent of financial regulation in some ways. It was extremely hands off. Um, I was inter- I, I was listening to Deirdre Flynn um, talk about this recently, and she was she's a she's a construction lawyer um, and a Green Party candidate out in South Dublin, and she was talking about the fact that the state gradually withdrew from inspection and regulation of the building sector during the 70s and 80s because there were cases in the UK where defects emerged and the state was found to have some culpability. So it was almost this kind of, um, this this protective measure that they mm. did over time. But th- effectively, the, the, the net result is that, you know, at the time when we had the Celtic Tiger construction, it was occurring in a vacuum of financial regulation, but also a vacuum of building regulation as well. You know, it was, you know, effectively a kind of Wild West scenario. Yeah, what are the Construction Industry Federation saying as a body? Have we asked them? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've talked to I've talked to Tom Barlin about this and, and you know, he would say, um, 
he would say, you know, it's a very unfortunate situation. Um, and he would say as well that, you know, a lot of these guys who make the point, and it is a point well made, that a lot of these guys are no longer around. And Tom and and, and, and other people, such as Owen Murphy, the housing minister, would quickly point to the fact that we now operate under a much stricter regime, which is great, you know, and, and that that's good that you can buy a house and you build in, you know, somewhat more confidence now that it's built under this regime. But it doesn't help the people who who bought homes that were built under the old regime. And that's the problem we're trying to address, you know. Yeah, it's a bit lame, though, isn't it, of the Construction Industry Federation to just uh, wash its hands of this. I mean, these people were all members, presumably, of the CIF, and the CIF was uh, talking about so how great like, the building bit, industry was at that time. I seem to recall all of these developments uh, were kind of eulogising the marketing brochures mm-hmm. and so forth by estate agents it's and whatever. It's a bit lame everyone involved, I think. I think these people have been left twisting in the wind, the people who bought these apartments, um, and left to fight mismatched battles by themselves Um, and the fact that you know it's just more convenient basically for the state for the building industry to you know almost stick its fingers in its ears and pretend there isn't a problem Um, and what I fear is that it's going to take some real tragedy um, occurring for us to admit the scale of the problem for you know like Ireland or the, you know the Irish state to to admit the scale of the problem and admit that it has to actually step up a grandful terror style and that's so, what the, the uh, Society of Chartered Surveyors have been warning this for the last year and a half since Grenfell happened and um, they've made representations to the Oireachtas um, saying that this situation could happen and they've not been listened to um, they they called on the government to set up, um, and it's a very level-headed response. I thought was to you know to set up a review scheme where peop- where there would be inspections of buildings built during the boom to sta- establish what's mm. dangerous and what's not, and to start fixing the problems yeah. as they exist. Well, it sounds like a bit of a boom for them to be able to do that now because obviously chartered surveyors would have to be involved in that uh, process. And Booming I just wondered where were the chartered surveyors uh, when these things were being constructed because you would have had multiple chartered surveyors on every yeah. development. Mm. And you can't put a steel bar in or construct a wall without a charge with severe saying that's okay. Mm, it comes back to that issue that we were talking about of, of culpability and liability being spread across many different um, entities and many different players in the, involved in the construction of an apartment block. But you're right. I mean, you know, charge of would have been on site. Um, and, and questions have to be asked of, of, you know, the roles that everyone played or the roles that everyone didn't play mm. as these things are being constructed. Neve, where do we go from here? What's the government's response going to have to be to this mm. in the finish? at the moment they're not budging um, but I think they're going to have to do something for people in this situation we saw that they set up a remediation scheme for the people affected by pyrite and I don't know how they're going to avoid that given that um, this really is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to apartment owners left affected by this Um, we've seen dozens of people right into us in the days since we've published this investigation with the exact same problems and worse, so much worse um, than what we've already published. So, I mean, you can't ignore it. There are so many people across the country in this situation um, and whether that means setting up a remediation fund, whether that means tax breaks on loans provided to them, um, something has to be done to help these people. Um, I don't think it's fair, I don't think it's right uh, to blame it on past governments or to pass the buck on to somebody else to say that it's up to owners to test this in the courts themselves. Something has to be done. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying that has to be a handout and this open-ended liability that Murphy is worried about. Um, but, you know, something tangible, something practical mm. that people can put their hands on and, and, and you know, hope for better. 
Jack, can we be sure that the apartments that are being built right now, because there are apartment schemes being built where we're back, yeah, we're back in building mode again post the recession, can we be sure that they're actually being constructed in a proper manner and that they don't have the same defects? I think we can be certainly sure that things are better. I mean, uh, construction academics, experts in the area uh, that I talk to fairly regularly would say that, you know, it is not quite night and day, but certainly a tighter uh, system than what went before. But what went before was so bad, effectively, that, you know, we can't step away and pretend it didn't happen. The developers who are involved in the schemes that you looked at, are they all effectively in business again today? Some of them are. Um, some of them never went out of business. Um, some of them were, were chewed up, and you know I think that's representative of, of what happened to a lot of that, that sector. You know, Some survived and went on to build again, um, and, and some are gone. And a lot of the apartments that are being built now are actually being uh, for rental purposes and are owned by institutional landlords. Mm. And you would think if defects emerge down the road in any of these it would, it would schemes, be we're in easier. a better position. Yeah, we now. are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the built-to-rent sector now. I mean, God forbid, you know, something of the scale were to emerge in what is the built-to-rent sector now, and is very big. But if that were to happen, you would imagine that the institutional landlords would have the kind of financial wherewithal and the financial skills to put something around fixing it, uh, because they just, you know, they're, they're so much more. They have so much more capacity than uh, a simple owner-occupier would. Yeah. Neve, the only way to get things done in this uh, country is to form yourself into a, a group, become politically active and really get out there, beat the streets and uh, make this a big issue. Shout very, very loudly. That's the only way you get things done and solved in this country. Are the residents who are affected by this, are they organising themselves in that way? There seems to be there seems to be the embers there. It seems to be starting. Um, those women that I spoke to in Marsfield Avenue certainly had that they're not going anywhere um, attitude. Um, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them were saying things like, um, just to quote one of them, um, Joanne Turrell from Marsfield, she said, I get up early in the morning, I struggle to pay my mortgage, I pay my taxes, I pay nearly two grand in management fees annually. Um, and now I have to pay six grand to make my apartment fire compliant. They're not going to, they're not going to sit down and just let this roll over them. And part of the reason is because they can't, they don't have six grand to pay these fees to, and they're obligated now to pay mm. them they're in debt to their management company if they don't pay them so it's not a choice anymore and I think um, we'll see a lot more owners actually who are brave and it is a very brave thing to do to speak about your apartment because is, remember yeah. you're you're bringing down you're possibly risking bringing down the value of, uh, of your and, and biggest inv- asset inviting, inviting opprobrium sometimes from your neighbours who yeah. might want to might prefer to pretend there's no issue you know mm-hmm. because of that issue around, around value I mean the, the, the impact on people when you talk to them um, about the stress and the anxiety uh, which exists on two tracks. First of all, of living in an apartment which has the defective build around it and, and obviously the attendant issues around safety and are you safe in your bed at night, but also the stress of fighting this fight often for years mm. takes a massive toll and it is a very human story at the centre of this. It's about the home and about being safe in your own home. All right, guys, listen, I want to congratulate you on the work you've done to date. I know this is uh, something you're going to keep on top of as, as we go forward and it's going to play out over a long period of time. Neve and Jack, thank you for joining us. Now, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Mark Paul of the Irish Times about Diageo's plans to launch a new cider into the Irish market. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. 
Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, Diageo has secretly been plotting to launch a new cider into the Irish market. It's a market that's already dominated by CNC's Bulmer's brand and Heineken's Orchard Thieves and it's one that's got a bit of a cloud over it because of Brexit. Mark Paul had the story and he joins me in studio now to tease out the implications. Um, Mark, first of all, tell us what Diageo are planning. Well, Diageo last year launched a new lager brand called Rockshore into the market. And um, from what we've been told, they're now going to launch a Rockshore cider um, into the Irish market. It'll be their their, their third attempt at a, a cracking the Irish cider market over the last 20 years. Um, the first two didn't really go to plan. Um, you had Cashel Cider, I don't know if you remember, and they had Hudson Blue as well. And both of those brands have really just slipped away. They never really made any dent. So interestingly, Diageo have... Uh, flagged for tomorrow, for Thursday, that they're going to launch a fresh new taste, they say, in the Irish market. They, they're not saying what it is, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it wouldn't be a bad guess to say that it'll, it'll be the Rockshore launch. And it'll be interesting then to see how this impacts on CNC and also on Heineken as well, which has Orchard Thieves. Yeah, and interestingly, CNC have uh, results out tomorrow, so we, we should get some indication as to how they're performing and how 2018 went for them and whatever headwinds might be there because of Brexit and and all of that uncertainty. Presumably... Uh, Diageo is going to throw a lot of money at this. Yeah, Diageo are, uh, are are you know I mean they're they're not shy when it comes to the marketing stakes. I mean they have a, a long heritage of marketing their brands uh, by throwing bucket loads of money at it. I mean look at the sort of Guinness ads they do and the sort that they spend on that. Bulmer's uh, uh, CNC Magnus Bulmer's obviously is is the most exposed. It's got what over sixty percent of the Irish cider market, but Orchard Thieves has has fifteen percent I think from a standing start. So it's you know Heineken Heineken's exposed to this as well. So it's 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 not going to be easy for either of those two incumbents if Diageo throws a lot of money at it. But it's not going to be easy for Diageo either. I mean, as you said, they've tried twice already. They put an awful lot of money behind Hudson Blue and um, back at the sort of uh, peak days at Celtic Tiger and it never really went anywhere. Cashel's was probably a little bit more successful and that would have really directly targeted Bulmers back in the day, Bulmers type drinkers. But again, it, it never really stuck. And, and there's also some you know, this move isn't without risk for Diageo. I mean, the timing of it, I think, is is is, is really really strange. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, where are they going to source their their apples from? It's a case of who's going to, who's going to make the cider for them, right? And CNC isn't making the cider for them. We know that. And it, you know, I'm not sure what other significant cider manufacturing capacity there is in the island. Making cider and making beer are two fundamentally different processes, squashing apples and fermenting them. It's more like making wine than you would, uh, you know, than making beer from wheat. Um, so I think it's unlikely that they've just transformed a beer production line in St. James's Gate into an apple crushing and, uh, and, and cider making facility. So it suggests they're probably importing this cider from the UK, you would suggest. And considering Brexit is a couple of weeks away and nobody has a, 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 an absolute notion on what conditions uh, we're going to trade under with the UK, you don't know how affected the importation, if that's what they're going to do, you don't know how affected the importation of that cider from the UK into Ireland will be affected, how the, how, the, how the logistics of it will be affected. I mean, when it comes to tariffs on alcohol, cider is one of the most taxed, in that sense, alcoholic drinks out there. Now, you look at, it's, it's sort of hard to tell from looking at the, the WTO tariff rates exactly what they are, but they look to be about 5 to 8%, but it all depends on what the UK decides to do. I mean, it has its own indigenous cider production 
industry that it is going to look to protect in the event of a no-deal Brexit. I mean, you just have to go to Devon and these places. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're tripping over cider makers when you go to places like that. So if they look to protect that with some sort of a high tariff, well, then the EU will retaliate with an equally high tariff. And and that would affect the importation of, of any cider into Ireland and that anybody wants no, to sell here. Of course, Brexit could be kicked down the road. The can could be kicked down the road. There's no question about that. It could be kicked down the road, but it's just they seem to be they seem to be better sure of the outcome of Brexit than I think the people in the Brexit negotiations at the moment. Mm, okay, now Rockshore as a lager, how's it done in the Irish market? Well, look, there there isn't uh, in-depth data uh, 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 available out of fingertips to tell us exactly what share of the market that is cornered. Anecdotally, I, I mean. It's certainly very prominent. It's prominent, but I mean, it, it, that's bought prominence uh, uh, through marketing. I mean, how prominent is the product through its relationship with customers? I think it takes a little bit more time for that. Anecdotally, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't hear of any um, uh, hardcore Rockshore drinkers out there who rave about the brand. It's not a particularly distinctive lager. It's a mass-produced lager in a in a in a in a in a, in a market by a, a you know a large corporate company. Um, so. Uh, look, the more money they throw at this cider launch, the Rockshore cider launch, the better it will do. Um, and, but eventually that sort of marketing wears off. People have to buy into the brand and buy into the product. Um, and uh, at the moment, Bulmers holds that ground. People are more emotionally invested in Bulmers. Um, so uh, let's see how much money it'll cost the IGO to, for Rockshore to take some of that ground from Bulmers. Okay, well, we should learn more about that tomorrow with the launch um, that the Azio is planning. That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Neve Towie, Jack Horgan-Jones and Mark Paul. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. You can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.